Good evening. Let's talk a little bit tonight about some resurrections, some evidences for the resurrection. But first, uh, I want to bring you greetings and uh, salutations from uh, Brandon Tyler. I get to talk to him every now and then, and he always says how much he misses being here and being with you guys. So he sends his love. And uh, I know I can say that anytime I talk to him, he mentions it. So whenever I talk to him, there you go. That's from Brandon. Why, why talk about evidences for the resurrection? If I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? I'd probably get a unanimous, yeah, probably everybody would, would say yes. And so you might be wondering, well, why are we talking about that if we all believe it? Well, sometimes we believe in things just because that's always what we've heard and it makes sense to us. And so we believe it. And some of these things you may have thought about and some of them you haven't. But when you believe in something, it helps me to see evidence that I'm believing in the right thing. And so let's talk about some of these tonight. This is a passage from Romans chapter 1 where where Paul opens this letter to the church at Rome saying that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. And everything we hold dear hangs on this one fact, that Jesus rose from the dead. And as he would write later to the church at Corinth, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. But I don't know that we're any more miserable than anybody else because nothing means anything if if Jesus did not raise from the dead. But he did. And I believe that with everything because of all the evidence that supports it. So let's look at some of it. There are four separate Gospels. Some people would say, ah, you can't count the Bible. Well, why can't you count the Bible? Why can't you count... These ancient documents, written almost 2,000 years ago, four witnesses declaring the truth of what we know about Jesus Christ. Primarily, that he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. Four separate Gospels testify to these things. Each of these Gospels were written close enough to the events that people who would have been eyewitnesses could have said, No, that's bunk. None of that happened. It would be if somebody were to write today and say, back in the 1950s, Pee Wee Herman was president. What would you say if somebody wrote that today? You'd say, well, that makes sense, the way they're rewriting history today. Because that's what's happening today. A lot of history is being changed and rewritten for certain political views that people are trying to to push on us. But everybody would know, even people who weren't alive then, who, who know enough about the history because we've heard it from our parents and our grandparents, we would know that that's... That's bogus. That didn't happen. And so if these four guys produced these Gospels in the days of people who were alive who would have known these things to be true or false, they would have said, no, it didn't happen. And it's not like it happened off in a corner somewhere. These things happened in the most public city in all the world. When Jesus was standing before not Pilate, here at this point, but the high priest. He said, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said, and they did. And that's what the apostles wrote. That's what the the gospel writers wrote. That's what the New Testament prophets wrote. And that's what we have in the New Testament record. And aside from the gospels, Luke and John... Peter, Paul, James, and Jude also wrote and 
filled in the blanks, if you were, in the rest of the New Testament. These guys wrote the document that we now call the New Testament of Jesus Christ, and they all attested to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus, every single one of them. So we've got the four Gospels telling the same story, just from the perspective of these four men. And we have the rest of the New Testament saying, yes, it it happened. And this is the message that they carried into the world that was the first century. And with that message, they established churches all over the place. Even among people whose cultures were very strange to Judaism. The message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ resounded with them and the church was established and people believed it in the day that eyewitnesses could have said it didn't happen. But it did happen and the church was established and it flourished. Something noteworthy had to have happened to explain, and I use the word preponderance. Usually you use the word preponderance as a, uh, a comparative word. But if you look at any other ten historical documents, you won't find the attestation that the New Testament has for its accuracy, its veracity, if you will. For example, 5,600 plus manuscripts of the New Testament. This doesn't mean that we've got entire New Testaments, that many of them, but we've got portions of the New Testament. There are this many handwritten manuscripts. A manuscript is when... Uh, somebody gives you a Bible and you take paper and you start writing out what it says and you, you want to write it accurately. That's why you're taking the trouble to do it. And so you are careful with what you write and you write that out. And then you take that home and you use it, you read it, you pass it on to your children, your grandchildren. And they say, Hey, can I copy what you've got grandpa? Oh, sure. Make a copy of it. And these are collected over the years as they are preserved in one way or another. And today we have, and I'll use the word extant. Extant is simply a word that means it exists. You can go to wherever these place, these things are being kept and, and you can examine them. And this is what scholars do. They look at these manuscripts and they say, you know, this one says the same thing. This Well, this one's a little bit different, but how is it different? Well, instead of this letter, they have that letter. And that's usually the only kind of difference that there is. When you look at a, a Greek New Testament with the notations of differences, those are the kinds of differences you see. I expect, oh, there's differences? Let me see what those differences are. And I thought, oh, there'd be some glaring uh, discrepancy, with, but there's, there's never anything like that. 5,600 manuscripts plus of the New Testament. We also have 2,453 lectionaries. What's a lectionary? Well, not everybody had Bibles copied out, so you would take the Bible, and somebody who might have been in charge of worship would have said, let's pull out some passages that are good for worship, let's write these down, and then we can give this to the guys who were in charge of reading next week, or leading a prayer, or making some comments, and we could say, here are the passages we want you to use. And so there would be copied passages of the New Testament in these documents that are called lectionaries, that are simply for the purpose of helping men lead in worship. And they have Quotations from the New Testament. We've got over 2,000 of these that we found that are also extant. They exist. You can go look at them, read them. From the 5th century on, by the way. 5th century would have been the 400s. 1st century was 0 through 99, and the 1st century would have been 100 on. Oh, I meant to bring them in. I've got, uh, I've got the collection of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. How many of you are old enough to know what an ens- a set of encyclopedia looks like? 
All right. That's what the anti-Nicene fathers look like. These are guys. The, the Council of Nicaea was at 325 A.D. And so men who were in the church, who wrote about the church and wrote about doctrines, teachings, wrote about the New Testament, wrote about Jesus and the apostles, wrote about the practices of the church, these guys were called the fathers of the church because they wrote prolifically about these things. And they quoted scripture in their writings. And it, I've got a, you, you put your hands like this. This is about how wide the books would be. I think there's 10 volumes in my set. This is the anti-Nicene font. These guys did a lot of writing about the church and about heresies and defending the truth, about the practice of the church, about what people believe. And they quoted a lot of scripture. As a matter of fact, if you take the writings of the anti-Nicene fathers, you could reproduce the New Testament in whole except for 11 verses. There are 11 verses in the New Testament that you can't find in the anti-Nicene fathers. And so this also is evidence that, hey, something big happened. And the thing that happened was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are versions Somebody would read the Bible and say, well, I, that's, that's fantastic. I need a copy of that, but I need to make it in a copy of, uh, uh, in, make it in the language of my own people. So they would write it in a different language. And these versions, language, uh, copies of the New Testament in, in different languages would be found. And they would read them and translate them and say, well, this says the same thing that it says over here in the Greek or the Aramaic. So we've got versions as well. A lot of evidence. So here's some questions regarding the evidence. Where is the body of Jesus Christ? If he's not risen, where would it be? Got to be somewhere. With that question, we come up with a few groups of people we might want to ask about. Did the Jews take the body of Jesus? Matthew records that the Jews went to Pilate and said, hey, these guys said he was going to raise from the dead. We need to put a guard at the tomb to make sure his disciples don't come and steal the body. That's what they said. Pilate said, you have your guard, go make it secure. And that's exactly what they did. They sealed the tomb with the stone, they sealed the stone, put a Roman, uh, a contingent of Roman soldiers at the tomb to guard it to make sure nobody came to take that body. That's what they did. When Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb, they bribed the guards to say, that the disciples took it. That's what they feared in the first place. So when he rose, they said, wow, where's the body? All right, here's some money. We'll defend you to Pilate so you don't get in trouble for losing the body of Jesus. And you tell everybody that the disciples came and took it. That was the story Matthew told. Now, keep in mind, if that didn't happen, it could have easily been tossed out the window because of the eyewitnesses who would have been there to say, ah, that, that's not what happened. Matthew's writing stuff that never took place. But they didn't do that because it had taken place. The body of Jesus being missing would have been the last thing the Jews would have wanted to take place. They wanted that body to stay in the tomb they wanted Jesus dead, and they wanted it to be proven to the whole world that he was dead because they knew he had made the claim to resurrect from the dead. So to slip in there somehow and take the body wouldn't have made any sense at all for them to do that. That's the last thing they wanted. And if they had taken the body, 
Once the church took off, they would have said, oh, ha, 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 we've got the body of Jesus right here. Come and take a look. This proves that you guys are not telling the truth about the resurrection, and they didn't do that either. So it wasn't the Jews who took it. How about the disciples? Did the disciples take the body of Jesus? Well, the guard would have prevented them. Roman soldiers would have said, you're not getting this body. Because if we lose it, we would forfeit our lives. That's the way things worked in those days. So the guard would have stopped the disciples from taking the body. All the testimony is not only for the resurrection, but the testimony is that the apostles, the disciples, saw Jesus after his resurrection. And so the testimony says they saw him. They didn't take it. He was risen or raised by his father, and they saw the risen Christ. The testimony is also that the disciples didn't even believe in the resurrection at first. Who were the first ones to be at the tomb? The women. The women were the first ones. But were the women there expecting to see Jesus rise from the dead? They were not. Were the apostles there expecting to see Jesus rise from the dead? See, what I'm saying is if, if this resurrection was a made-up story, why wouldn't the apostles have written themselves into it? If they're making it up, why wouldn't they have written themselves into it in a glorious fashion to say, our Lord told us that in three days he would raise and we were there waiting and we saw it. Wouldn't that have been a better story than none of us believed him? He told us multiple times, and we didn't believe him, and we weren't there. Oh, there's a ball. Somebody's going to be upset. Uh, Be like that Plinko game where you let it go and it ding, 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 ding. Where I grew up in the church at Rock Creek, West Virginia, we, back in the day we had wood floors, and it was like this, only I think there might have been a little bit more of a pitch. So invariably, every Sunday, somebody in the back would drop a quarter. And you just hear it rolling until it hit the, the, wood, the woodwork at the front of the building. It was, it was pretty cool. The wonderful memories we have from worshiping the Lord in our past. <laughs> So these guys didn't, they didn't think it was going to happen. And that's what they wrote into the story. Why did they write that in? Because that was the truth. They wrote the truth. They wrote the truth about themselves. It wasn't complimentary. It didn't glorify them. They glorified God. That was the whole point. Did the apostles get rich? Talking about the resurrection? Did they gain great fame and accolades? Were they invited to palaces? What happened? They took this message all over the world and they were persecuted for it. They were imprisoned. They were beaten. They were put to death. Not just the apostles, but others who preached the gospel. Why did the apostles, or not the apostles, but why did the saints leave Jerusalem in the first place? Remember in Acts chapter 2, we read about Peter preaching on Pentecost and how many people... Obeyed the gospel that day? About 3,000. Later on, the number grew to 5,000. But when you get to chapter 8, 
a great persecution arose against the church. And they fled. They scattered. And it says they went everywhere doing what? They went everywhere preaching the gospel. Why would they do that if they didn't know it was the truth? This is what the record shows us happened. And the church was established. And the church has grown and flourished. Well, I didn't write it into the lesson, but just the existence of the church yet today is evidence for the resurrection. These guys gave their lives to preaching a message that only got them trouble in this world. But they still did it. Another question, what about the changed lives? Let's start talking about a blizzard. The apostles, haha. Look at Acts chapter 1. Luke finishes his gospel. He writes what we now, we, we measure it out in 24 chapters. The chapters were not known to Luke when he wrote it, but those were added later. It was divided into chapters and verses, which I'm grateful for. I'm sure you are too. It makes it a lot easier to study and, and find things. But then Luke picked up in Acts where he left off in the gospel. And this is what he writes in the first chapter of the book of Acts. By the way, Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he's meeting with his apostles here. That's what Luke is recording. And it says in verse 4, Gathering them together, the apostles, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're going to do what? Going to restore the kingdom. Restore the kingdom to who? To Israel. They had in mind a very nationalistic view of the kingdom. It was all about the nation of Israel. God's going to restore our nation to its power economically, militarily, politically. We're going to have the status we once had as a great nation of people. That's the question they're asking in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. And it's almost merciful. Jesus said, it's not for you to know. He didn't go into, you goofballs, it's not about this country. It's not about your nation. These men changed. You see it happening through the book of Acts. As the church, the gospel is spread, the church begins to grow, and it grows in places where it wasn't just Jews, it was Gentiles. By the way, who was the greatest persecutor of the church as it grew in the first century? The greatest persecutor of the church was not Rome. It was the Jews. But they still preached. And the gospel went out. It was not about the Jewish nation. It was about the world. By the time we get to chapter 10 of, uh, of Acts, Peter is preaching the gospel to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, he and his family. And then in chapter 11 and chapter 15, you read about the great controversy that arose in the church. Oh my goodness, we're letting Gentiles in. Oh yeah, that was a plan all along. That had to be explained. And so you read about those controversies or that controversy being dealt with in chapter 11 and chapter 15 of Acts. But the apostles changed their minds. And what changed their minds was the resurrection when they finally saw what the resurrection was all about. It wasn't just for nation, uh, the nation of Israel becoming great. It was about salvation for the whole world. Oh, I didn't even give you the whole thing. By the way, I want you to know, uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, 
I called the, uh, what's the school up here that teaches the trades? The Votech. I called the Votech. I said, I'd like to learn how to make PowerPoints a little better. Can you help me with that? I'll say, yeah, sure, we can help you with that. You, we'll arrange, you can see if you've got any people that want to take a class in PowerPoint. So if you want to take a class in PowerPoint, let me know. But then after I talked to her about that, some things kind of happened and got sidetracked, so I never did contact her back. But if you want to take a class in PowerPoint, uh, I want to do that too. I'll call her and she'll arrange it. I'm saying that because I'm still trying to get this worked out here. Oop, not that one yet. This one. Okay, there we are. We've talked about that. The apostles went from a nationalistic view of the kingdom of God to a world-inclusive view. Paul's change, his conversion. He was a Jew's Jew. He was a persecutor of the church. And if you go to Philippians chapter 3, I want you to read what he, what he wrote here to the church in Philippi about himself and what his new passion, his new goal is all because of the resurrection. Philippians chapter 3. Start reading with me at verse 3, Philippians 3, 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's talking about the church. We are the true circumcision. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day. Why is that important? Because that's what the law demanded, circumcision on the eighth day. And he was circumcised. Well, before he was even old enough to know right from wrong, he was eight days old and he was being a good Jew. Basically, that's what that's saying. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Who else was of the tribe of Benjamin? The first king of Israel, Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, A persecutor of the church as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. That's what he says of himself. And then he says this. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whoa, what did he just say? He says, because of this one man. Because of this one man who's God, and he is going to go on to say, this one man who's God who was raised from the dead, I count all that as rubbish. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, And the power of his what? The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now what's he talking about there in verse 10? The power of his resurrection is what he says. The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What's that all about? That's what he wrote about in Romans chapter 6. Being baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his death. It's in his death that he shed his blood. His death is where 
He was hung on the cross. He was crucified. His side was pierced. The blood and the water flowed out. And Peter says, I want fellowship in that death. Peter, Paul, is writing that. And he says, this, this is worth counting everything else I've ever achieved in life as garbage. This man was transformed. What transformed him? Well, what happened in Acts chapter 9? He's on the road to Damascus, and who appears to him but Jesus <laughs> and strikes him blind. And the record says he was blind for how long? Three days. And for three days he didn't eat or drink anything. And then God sent a man to him who didn't want to go because he'd heard about Paul. And Ananias said, this guy persecutes the church and you're sending me to him? And the guy God sent (laughs) went to him and he, he preached Jesus to him. And he already knew Jesus. He'd seen him on the road. He talked to him. He had been praying to him for three days, and he was converted. And after his conversion, he became, as I wrote, a, a powerhouse apostle for Jesus Christ, spreading the gospel all over the known world. What could cause such a change in a man except something as profound as the resurrected Christ? And so I believe Paul's life is evidence for the resurrection. James and Jude. Now, if you look at Matthew 13... We're talking about these two guys who are brothers of Jesus in the flesh. In other words, they came from the same mom, although these were actually children of Joseph. Jesus was a child of Mary, but not of Joseph. And I can't find the scripture while I'm talking. Even if, oh, I said Matthew, didn't I? I'm getting ahead of myself. I know I'm going to John, so I'm looking, started looking at Matthew chapter 13. Here we are. Verse 55, just a, just a small text. Wait a minute. What am I doing? Oh, that's Mark. Matthew has two T's, right? Oh, there it is. (laughs) Ah, here we are. Matthew 13, 55. You've already read it ten times. Look, waiting for me to find it, haven't you? Is not this the carpenter's son? Talking about Jesus. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So we've got four brothers named. Two of those brothers are James and Judas. Well, in John 7, however, before we get too far along, John chapter 7, we read a little bit about his uh, home life, shall we say, family life. And this is what we read. John 7, 3 through 5. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here, go into Judea so that your disciples may also see your works which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had brothers in the family, but they didn't believe in his claims of being the Messiah. However... 
that disbelief for these two brothers was short-lived. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to the church about the resurrection. And he says that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he showed himself to a number of people. And this is what he says. Verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. James. James who? James, his brother. Not James the apostle. He's already appeared to the apostles. But he wanted to note here for the church in Corinth that Jesus had appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul writes. But one of the people he includes is James. And then we read in Acts chapter 12 and verse 17. I know we're we're jumping around here a little bit, but I want you to see these texts because you don't necessarily pick these up unless you're looking for them or thinking about them. But in Acts 12, 17, it says this. Motioning to them with his hand, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison and he said, report these things to James and the brethren, and he left and went to another place. Now, how do we know that James was not James the apostle? What happened in the first couple of verses of chapter 12? James the apostle was martyred. Herod had him killed with the sword. So this James is James the Lord's brother. And then in Galatians chapter 2, James, we see him becoming a pillar of the church. And that's what he writes about in the second chapter of Galatians. Recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And then finally in James's letter. Now, remember how James starts? James 1.1. And we might read this and think, okay, now wait a minute. When James starts this letter, he doesn't call himself the brother of Christ. Look at what he says. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Why wouldn't he say he was the brother of Christ? Would there be a reason for that? If this were James the Apostle, like Paul, he would have said James the Apostle. But it wasn't James the Apostle. This was James, the Lord's brother. And we don't know for sure why he did not say James, the Lord's brother, but it may well be he knew everybody at that time already knew who he was. And he had been someone who had not put his faith in his brother. And so now, now to claim that status, if you will, maybe he would have felt hypocritical. I'm not sure. It doesn't say why he didn't claim to be the brother, but evidence is that this James is the brother of Jesus. What caused him to change his mind? The only real thing between this James and the James of John chapter 7 is the resurrection. Ah, Jesus, you're you're just my brother. You, you don't you're nobody special and then oh, hey. I saw you crucified and now you're standing before me. That's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15. James changed his mind about his brother. And then Jude. Jude starts out 
And the evidence is that this Jude is the Judas, who is mentioned as the brother of Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother to who? Brother to James. Now, he doesn't identify that James. You wonder why? Probably because everybody would have known when he wrote this who James was. Oh, yeah, that's... Why wouldn't he have said brother to Jesus? Well, probably the same reason James didn't say brother to Jesus. But Jude was willing to say brother to James. Yeah, me and my brother who didn't believe in our other brother. (laughs) But here we are. Me and James, my brother, writing about our other brother. The one we've seen risen from the dead. The one whose resurrection, in whose resurrection we believe. Well, these are just some things I've been been thinking about and thought might make an interesting and helpful uh, lesson for you in your faith. You can tell me later if this was helpful or not. Sometimes I like to know. And if these are, tell me also, oh, I've heard all that stuff. No big deal. I already believed all that. Because I know you believe in the resurrection already. Don't you? Oh, yeah, I know you do. That's why you're here. That's why you're always here. But I just thought these things might help to to further that faith along and to establish it a little better. At any rate, because of the resurrection, there is salvation in Jesus' name. And if you are sitting here tonight without that salvation, without your life, your soul, in the hands of God through his son Jesus, we want to talk to you about that because it's available for everyone. And if you're thinking... You're looking around and you're thinking, oh, this is a church full of good people and I'm not good like them. You haven't been here long enough (laughs) to see what we're really, because we are just a bunch of sinners standing in desperate need of the grace of God, just like everyone else in the world is. We're no different from anyone. The only thing different about us is we're in the kingdom and we want you to be in the kingdom with us. So if you have any questions you'd like to ask, anything you'd like to talk about, you need the prayers of this church. We're going to sing a song we call the invitation song. Titus is going to lead us. Come on up here, Titus. Bring your ball if you want. (laughs) And we'll sing and invite people to respond to the gospel.